So this week um, we're continuing our sermon series uh, taken from the LICC notes that some of you have been following and studying, I know, uh, particularly thinking about having confidence uh, in our faith to have an impact in the places that form our front lines of engagement in the world around us, the bit that we inhabit outside of church. You have all clocked that, haven't you? That there is. It's hard sometimes to remember in Baptist circles that there is a world outside of church life. As Ewan was fond of saying, Mary had a little lamb and it was hers to keep until it joined a Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. (laughs) But this morning we're focusing uh, on having confidence through developing competence, which uh, the irony of that, that it's me that's speaking on this, has not escaped me uh, this morning. Um, But think about living out faith in a setting that can often be really either ambivalent to what we've got to say or even possibly even hostile to it. How do we live out of faith in the world around us? Um, And I want us to think um, this morning about being competent in three areas. I don't know whether that's going to work. Oh, that's all right. It's only reformatted it slightly, so that's great. Okay. I want us to think about these three areas this morning, and I want you to bear these in mind because this is me preaching, and the chance of me working through these systematically uh, is, is very slim. So keep these in mind as I'm speaking to you, will you? Being competent incarnators of the gospel. How do we live it out personally? How do we actually embody the life of Jesus where we're at work, being competent ambassadors of the gospel and how we bring it relationally. How do we influence our front lines as ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus? And then finally, how do we become confident articulators of the gospel? Can we really explain to people um, what it means to be a Jesus follower clearly? And I want us to think about these things in three other different ways really, about how we gain confidence in these areas. So it's confidence through... Don't mind me, all right, mate? There you go. What was that about confidence? (laughs) (laughs) So I want to think about confidence through knowledge, study, training, practices. What does it take to actually become competent? And how much effort do we need to put into some things? Confidence that comes through experience and competence through God's presence, his call and his gifting on our lives. Now, both the readings that we've just heard, thanks John, uh, gave him a double one uh, this time, uh, encourage us to develop our competencies in sharing our faith with others and I've chosen both because they encourage us to be ready and prepared in slightly different ways. Did you notice that? Peter tells the church, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, effectively to live in such a godly and upright way that it intrigues people enough that they ask us why we live and act the way that we do. What makes you tick kind of questions? You ever had anybody do that to you? What is it about you guys? That's different. That's different, not weird. Uh, These are the kind of questions that come out of people noticing that there's something different about us and it reminds us that living the kind of living, that, that kind of living comes from setting aside Jesus as Lord. In your hearts and minds, set aside Jesus as Lord in your everyday life. So we end up living his way and in step with his teachings and his leadings. So we should look enough like Jesus that people notice us. Yeah? 
And the truth is, of course, if we don't look any different to anybody else, why should anybody ever bother looking at us in the first place? There should be those things that mark us out as having been with Jesus. There's effectively two kinds of encouragement in in Peter's message. The first is in competent and consistent living, so it matches up with the truth that we say that we believe. Everyone loves the hypocrite, don't they? Not. Yeah? There is nothing worse than saying one thing and living in a way that's not consistent with it. We might call that integrity of faith, yeah. The second is competence in our articulation. That we can explain why it is the way we live, the way we live, behave and react like we do. Sometimes it can seem an awful lot easier, I think, just to get on with trying to live for Jesus than actually trying to explain to somebody why we live for Jesus. But we'll come back to that in a little bit later. And then the second reason that we heard was Paul words to Timothy, encouraging us to confidence in a slightly different but closely related way, I'd suggest. And he talks about being able to explain ourselves and our beliefs from a biblical perspective. Having a robust theology and a biblical grasp of why Jesus is so unique and why we respond to him as Lord of our lives. Being competent in our use of scripture to explain our behaviour can be really important. Jesus used scriptures to explain his behaviour all the time. Have you noticed that? Why do you do what you do? Why is that right? It's because the word of the Lord says this. But listen, here's the rub. It's more important that we convey biblical and theological truth that's too many C's. It's more important that we convey biblical and theological truth that's consistent with the compassion of Jesus than it is that we've got the theological robustness to defend our apologetic, but in what can sometimes be a slightly callous way. Does that make sense to you? Yeah? We need the gentleness and respect that Peter suggests, and we don't go uh, wielding scripture-like weapons. When Paul spoke to the Ephesian church about the word of God being like the sword of the Spirit, I don't think he had in mind hacking people to death. With it. I don't think that was the image in his head. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us that the truth of God's words is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's keen enough to do spiritual surgery with. We don't need to be trying to wield it like a club. Yeah? So a little side note, if I can. Can I encourage us all, especially if we're having discussions with people that don't know what they think about the gospel, yet to hold a level of elasticity in our theological conversations and convictions? As a young Christian, I grew up uh, uh, in a free evangelical church. It's a great title, isn't it? It means anything goes, um, more or less. Um, It had its roots in the Brethren Assembly, and it, it... birthed in me a love of scripture. They were people who really loved the word of God. But the problem with that was that there was nobody who was part of us who had any theological training or ministerial formation. So what happened quite often is people picked their favourite verses and built their entire theology around the bits of the Bible that they liked the most. 
And that can be quite difficult. It tends to end up people get passionate about certain verses that they're convicted by and convinced of. And they defend those things to the hilt sometimes. Sadly, eventually, polarising people in that church that I was first a part of split itself in three directions, eventually, over those kind of strongly held opinions about things that weren't necessarily helpful. What that experience taught me is it's really easy to develop a strong and passionate conviction about an issue without actually possessing the tools to test the appropriateness of that conviction. And in my experience, lots of us as Christians have issues over which our feelings trump our knowledge and our understanding. We need to make sure that our feelings about things aren't allowed to so tightly bind our convictions that our knowledge and understanding has got no room to breathe and grow. If you build your theological understanding with bricks and you've got a doctrine of this and a doctrine of that and a grasp on that thing, but it's really rigid and held, somebody comes along and challenges one of those little doctrinal bricks in this lovely wall of theology that you've built and you threaten the entire wall. It threatens people's faith. So can I suggest that what we need to do is build with a level of elasticity so that any conviction that we personally hold has a little bit of room to breathe and stretch now again and can actually dialogue and engage with something that thinks differently to itself so that you can move a little bit, grow a little bit, expand a little bit without forcing everything else out of place. Does that make sense? Good. Let's go back to the idea of competence in answering questions we're asked. I want to use an example of a question that was once asked of me because it's kind of a way of bringing together some of our thinking on what competence looks like when we're handling questions of faith on our front lines. And when I was at college, I was asked uh, to write an essay on this question. Hands up. Who'd like to answer that one for us? Now, there is, of course, a really simple and straightforward answer to this question that any card-carrying Christian will immediately answer. And Rob, the answer was? Thank you very much. Of course, the simple answer is yes. However, to a scientific mind, or let's say a broadly inquiring mind, that kind of simplistic answer is deeply unsatisfactory. Have you noticed that with people? It's, it asserts an opinion without offering any supported evidence for its assertion. The same as if somebody else went uh, the opposite and just went, no, all we are is a series of chemical reactions and electrical impulses. Both are, I would suggest, deeply dissatisfactory. Dissatisfactory? satisfying answers, okay? I'm inventing words now. How about that? We can have an opinion from an opposite perspective that never invites somebody into the story about why we believe what we believe if we're not careful. So, but we'll do a bit more on that later, maybe. So, let me just suggest to you, bear with me a minute, but... An adequate answer to a question like this, it requires some understanding of some of the physico-chemical relationships of chain molecules and the biological processes that derive from them. Yeah? And those of you that grew up loving art and 
uh, that kind of thing, and uh, I'll go, what? why would anybody even care? Um, but it requires study and knowledge and application and learning the grasp of the subject in, under discussion before we begin to question whether the scientific processes alone begin to explain our experiences of what it means to actually be alive. Being able to explain what it means to be alive is a very different thing to being able to lay out what the chemical reactions are that are taking place in your body. And I suggest it's the same with answering questions about faith, and especially in a culture that's very little comprehension of the teachings of Scripture and even less conviction of their validity. But if we don't learn and study and read what scripture has to teach us, it's very hard for us to dialogue with helpful insight on what God's trying to teach us and why, and I'd suggest as well, it's really also very difficult to set aside Jesus as Lord in our lives if we don't know because we've never read what it is that he wants of us and what that looks like in practice. I often talk with the youth groups, it's about, you know, we're trying to follow Jesus, but If we've never read the Bible, how do we know what following Jesus looks like if we don't apply ourselves to the learning of Scripture? So it's true. The more we learn and study the Scriptures, the more we know about God and what God wants for us, and the better equipped we are both to live out our faith and the more competent we'll be in giving a satisfying answer to the questions that we're asked. But let me just do a little caveat here, because uh, before you write yourself off, because you don't have a degree in theology. Neither do I. Let me clarify that you don't have to know everything in order to have something helpful to share. We each only know what we know. You know. Uh, Do you know that? We each only know what we know. So even the most knowledgeable and most learned person on the planet will have gaps in their knowledge in some areas. Yeah? You know, they reckon it takes 10,000 hours of continuous application to become an expert in something, yeah? to really know stuff. So if you want to read ancient Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or anything else and go back to the scriptures in their original languages, it's going to take you quite a while. Can I suggest as well, one of the problems with learning ancient Greek and Hebrew is now someone's got to teach you, and that person wasn't alive when it was written. So they're only teaching you what they've been taught that means in the first place. Yeah? Yeah, where I'm going with that? Being an expert can be wonderful. It's fabulous. It's brilliant. You don't have to be an expert to share something of the truth. You don't have to be an expert to be competent in sharing your faith. So here's my advice to you. Share what you do know, not what you don't. Have you ever found yourself caught in one of those situations where someone asks you a question that you just can't answer? That you have no idea, that you've never really thought about that? Or I speak to a lot of Christians who go, oh, if I start a conversation, what if they ask me about this? What if they ask me that? How, do, how am I going to answer that? Well, don't. Just change the subject and talk about something that you do know. <laughs> it's my way of doing it. Okay. Share what you do know, 
Not what you don't. Share what you have learned. Don't become one of those politicians who tries to waffle their way through an answer to questions that they've got no idea what they're talking about. I don't know about that is a perfectly valid response to a question that you don't know the answer to. And more importantly, it's doing what I suggested in the first place. It's about having integrity in the conversations that you do. It's perfectly okay to go, I have no idea why God did that in the Old Testament, but let me tell you about something I have experienced of him. Let me tell you about something Jesus said. So again, it reinforces the importance of living an open and honest life, doesn't it? Better to be respected for your truthfulness than uh, found out as a fake. So let's just have another little think about something else. Thinking about being ambassadors, what does that mean? Because if we're thinking about incarnating in the gospel the way that we live and move and have our being, and we thought about articulating the gospel and how we might share the truth that we do know, what about being ambassadors for the gospel and what do I mean by that? And what I mean is by that we learn to bring the kingdom of God into every sphere of influence that we operate in. Now, some of us might feel that we don't actually have very much influence in our school, our college, our home, our workplace. But a robust understanding of Scripture brings us to the conclusion that we as Christians are called to be culture shapers, change makers, peacemakers, if necessary, influences wherever we put. Wherever it is that God has placed us in this season, some of us may have significant authority uh, to shape the culture in our workplace or other environments. Some of us feel powerless in that respect, and I've worked in both situations, by the way. But we're all called to see our communities transformed by the presence and compassion of Jesus, if you haven't picked that up yet. We're all called to be influencers who see our communities transformed by the presence and compassion of Jesus, each one of us doing our part. We're meeting with ministry leaders this afternoon. There's another plug for you, ministry leaders, if you haven't clocked the meeting at four o'clock this afternoon yet, uh, there's a meeting on. And we're going to be, one of the questions we're going to be thinking about, what would it look like to see this ministry area transformed by the presence and compassion of Jesus? But I suggest... It's a great question for each of us to ask wherever we happen to be 
uh, on our front lines, work, home, school, college, whatever situation we're in, what would it look like for this situation to be changed by the presence and compassion of Jesus? I think it's a great place to start. But then ask the question, what would it take to make that happen? And maybe more importantly, what could I do that would make a difference here? Perhaps you feel that you can't do much, but I believe that if you seek God, he'll guide you to something that you could do. And then all you need to do is that one thing. Similarly to articulating your faith where I said, share what you do now, not what you don't. Let me suggest when it comes to being ambassadors of the gospel, do what you can do, not what you can't. You may not be able to dictate in your work environment an entirely different modus operandi for how that company operates. You may not be able to put compassion as the top driving force within that organisation. But what is there that you could do? What's the one thing that you could do? Do that one thing anyway. And don't be afraid that that thing isn't big enough. Jesus spoke to his disciples about this, didn't he? He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Yeah? Tiny little thing, tiny little thing. But you plant it and it grows up to become this massive great tree that all the birds can nest in and that kind of thing. In my experience as Christians, sometimes we think, well, what's that worth? Plant it anyway and see what God does with it. What's the one thing that he can do? Or we get that other thing where we look at where we want to be and how we want our workplace or our environments to be. And we go, I can never shape that. Well, that's okay. Just plant the one seed. Let Jesus do the rest of it. So, okay. Thought about some things we want to be competent in. Living it out, sharing in our communities, talking about it. And now I just want to spend the last few minutes, promise, um, thinking about how we develop confidence. And I want to think about this by reflecting on the life of David for a minute. You can read that, maybe. Yeah. I want to think about how we develop competence in our lives. And I want to think about David. So, first of all, David the musician. Yeah. First thing, the time and practice it took David the shepherd boy to learn to become a skilled musician and a songwriter. Because you know he was, yeah? Yeah. Life of a shepherd boy is actually pretty isolated and lonely most of the time. Pretty quiet. Punctuated by the occasional lion and bear attack, yeah? Which we'll get into in a minute. And it's here that David would have spent countless hours learning his craft and entertaining his sheep with his latest compositions, I would suggest. That's the environment that David learned to worship God in. Stuck out on his own where no one else is looking with a harp or a lyre tucked under his hand trying to write praise songs that only the sheep were listening to. Yeah? But of course he wrote masses of songs. So many of them they form a great chunk of you know, one of the books in scripture He's a renowned and prolific writer whose epitaph recognised him as a devoted worshipper and a man after God's own heart, an Israel's beloved singer of songs. 
is someone whose musical skill could calm the evil spirit tormenting Saul and whose gifting allowed him to introduce a whole new way of worship into the life of the nation. And there's two things I want you to think about really quickly here. David's level of musical skill and gifting didn't just happen. You don't wake up one morning a brilliant musician and a prolific songwriter. It takes time to develop both of those things. It takes hard work and practice. David had to apply himself, I'd suggest, to his craft. And the second is this, that having become a skilled musician, hear me on this one, that wasn't the thing that ultimately defined David. David wasn't just an exceptionally good musician and songwriter. David was also a warrior, a king, a leader of his people. And it's important for us, especially when we've got really outstanding levels of skill, to make sure that we're not defined by them or the amount of hard work and effort that we've put into that area. It may just be that God wants to do some other things with us other than the obvious thing that we're skilled and gifted in. Our skills and our gifts are part of who we are, but that's all they ever are. They're a part of how we're made. The second thing I want to think about just for a minute is the story of David's fight with Goliath. So when David starts asking questions about why no one's taken on Goliath's challenge, his brothers are absolutely incensed. Do you remember the story? Uh, They accuse him of not knowing what he's talking about because he's just a boy, he's never been in the army, he's too young to fight. Others tell him he can't possibly defeat the giant because he's just a shepherd boy and Goliath has been a fighting man from his youth. Saul tries to prove this point by putting his armour on David, which must have been the most ridiculous looking outfit that anyone's ever worn at the time. What do we know about Saul? We know that Saul was head and shoulders above anyone else in the army of Israel. He's a huge bloke. Here along comes David and Saul puts his armour on him. The guy must have, you know what it's like when kids dress up in their parents' clothes and shoes. And what, it must have looked like that. Yeah. But David's got experience that no one else knows about. He's learned something about battles and life that no one else has. He's learned it not through thought skills and basic training, or through drills and the military academy. But what he's learned is this, that even small boys can take down lions and bears with sticks and stones when they trust in God to do something with the thing that they've got in their hand. Yeah. See, David knows on his own, small boys don't take out lion and bears easily. But he's learned to take out apex predators in the confidence that God has given him, in the competence that he has, in the little bit that he's got in his hand. Goliath's just one more apex predator that David goes, he can do that. I've seen him do that before. Hey? He can do that through me. But I can't wear 
your armour. I can't do it your way. I can't use what it looks like to you that I should use. I've got to do it with the thing that I know that God has given me. Guess what? He does it. (laughs) There will be all kinds of experience that you have had in your life that no one else knows about that maybe to other people doesn't look like it fits for the task that you need to do. But don't be written off because it doesn't look like you fit into the area that God's calling you to serve and to act in. Don't let anyone write you off because it looks like you don't have the experience that other people think you need. Do what you can do, not what you can't. Last thing. David the king third thing from David's life is this, that you can study and learn and develop a whole set of skills and abilities and along the way you can pick up all kinds of experience but ultimately we're competent not because of what we know but because of who we know. We're not competent because of what other people can see in us. We can have confidence that we're competent because of what God sees in us. What he says about us, David was so young and insignificant in even his own family's eyes that when Samuel was looking to anoint a king, Jesse overlooked the fact that he even had another son. Have you noticed that in the story? It's like, Samuel's going, have you got any more? (laughs) Jesse's going, let me think for a minute. Ah, yeah, David, yeah, looks after sheep. Um, But God saw a man after his own heart. God saw the future king and shepherd of his people. God saw a mighty warrior and a worship leader and a prophet and a priest king. Let me go on for a second, because God saw Noah, didn't he? When he had a bad habit of drinking too much and collapsing in front of his kids. And an Abraham and a Sarah who were too old and a Joseph who was a big head and a Moses who couldn't speak and a Gideon who was hiding away in fear and a Ruth who'd got absolutely nothing left and a Thomas who desperately needed proof for anything he was going to act on and a Peter who actually cocked it all up and denied his Lord and a Paul who persecuted Christians and he saw them and he saw you and he saw me. And he saw potential and possibility and he said, I can use them. I can use them. And he's called us to be part of what he's doing. And he's gifted us and enabled us uniquely for our own little role in the whole massive story that he's writing. To play our tiny part in the redemption plan of the whole of his creation. And he looks at us. Have a quick look round. He looks at us. And he declares us competent this morning. You got this, God says, because I got you. You got this because I've got you. And now I suggest that whatever else you think about yourself, that should be reason enough for any of us to have confidence in what we're doing. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, that we are what you've called us and made us and shaped us to be. Lord, thank you that you don't expect us to be all sorted out and perfect before you use us. Lord, you declare us competent, able, just because of what you've invested in us. And all you need is our yes. Lord, thank you that you've placed us where you've placed us and given us experiences that others may have no idea about. And Lord, you're able to take those and use those and use us to your glory on the front lines of where we mesh up against this world, Lord God. And you are able to do in us and through us immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, all we need to do is say yes to what it is that you ask of us and know that you have given and will give us everything that we need for life and godliness. Help us to trust you and believe you. In Jesus' name. Amen.